Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Welcome to the Joshua Nation's Inheritance Podcast. I want to talk uh, this morning about the Great Commission. And I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been... uh, It's got me asking kind of foundational questions about what is the gospel? What is the Great Commission? How do we do church? How do we engage culture? And at the same time, I'm serving some kind of older, um, I'm going to say more, I'll just say in my list of clients of people like Willow Creek and Hillsong and um, Jim Baker even, of which all of those different churches slash organizations have have gone through or are going through their own forms of of challenge scandal and and the like and so so i really am kind of grappling with some of these foundational questions and so in doing that i kind of went back to what is what was the the foundational creation uh commission to humanity um, even before the introduction of sin into the world. And uh, as I'm studying, I'm thinking this is so important for us to understand as Christians. And uh, not only that, but I'm, I'm taking my, my family through Genesis as well. So that's helped, me, uh, that's helped me kind of ponder on these verses again. So, you know, these uh, initial mandates, original mandates are found in Genesis 1.28 and 2.15. Uh, 1.28 says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in 2.15, uh, the alternate account, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And on the notes, I've kind of underlined the the specific verbs, uh, which are kind of Uh, commands for us. Now, I think it's important for us to understand as we read through kind of these creation accounts that beyond any kind of scientific description that it may or may not have, uh, the ancient account um, is is often the way that it's written is, is a description of the function of the different components that creation play in divine order. And so I think as we as we read it, it's important for us to note those verbs because they 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 talk about the function that humanity has, and humanity has this function, um, a, a role to work and create culture within the context of relationship to God. Uh, now it's interesting that word it says to work it or to till it and to keep it. To keep is, you know, alternatively translated in English is to watch or to serve. And that's the same word that is used throughout the Old Testament in the context of priests keeping the temple. And so it has kind of worship built in into that kind of initial meaning as man comes and kind of basically continues the creation mandate of God to organize out of chaos um, culture. And so, you know, Eden, I don't know what, what you think of when you think of Eden. Sometimes we don't think of anything, but, but it was good. Uh, but it wasn't like some manicured paradise. Humanity had to still bring 
order to it. That was the command uh, that man had to do. Now, Genesis is this interesting creation account because it's different than pretty much any other ancient account. Um, we don't see the earth derived from conflict, but we see a working God. God is this gardener. God is doing creative work. And this kind of Hebraic view of a working God continues um, in the creation of Adam. And so we see Adam is given this kind of life-giving work, which gives him purpose and dignity. Often when we think of work, we think work by the sweat of our brow, and that's part of the fall. But no, work was, work was there before the fall of man. And when God created it, it was good. And then God gave this command to humanity to subdue, to rule, to continue this creativity of God. Um, so we're called to be creators. We're called to create culture. Uh, God didn't call Adam to be a park ranger, but but that wasn't the, the call of, of Adam. He was called to create culture, to 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 take the the raw products and and make new culture. Uh, Tim Keller said this work has a dignity because it is something God does, and because we do it in God's place as His representatives. You know, as I was kind of pondering on this, I was thinking about um, I don't know if anybody's pondered on this verse in Acts. When you when you start to read Acts, it talks about you know Luke talks about in my previous book I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. And so the implication is we're going to talk about all that Jesus continued to do. And you're like, but hang on, Jesus isn't here anymore. It's actually the acts of Jesus in, in, in his representatives. Well, in a similar manner, at the beginning of Genesis, God begins the work and then man continues the work. So that's the original mandate. But, but soon we find, you know, Genesis 3 happens, the fall, the, the, the introduction of sin into the world. And I want to say, sometimes we're like, well, you know, that mandate's gone. Now the fall's come. Everything's corrupted. And, and I, I, I don't believe that. The fall frustrated, but it didn't abrogate. It didn't cancel that original commission. And I think that's clear when we just kind of read the account of Noah a few, few chapters later. Uh, you know, we, Noah has inherent corruption. He was a righteous man. But, you know, when he gets off the boat, he's he's drunk <laughs> that that wasn't exactly the acts of a righteous man necessarily but we do find that this same commission that was given in acts one is then given to noah as well so the original mandate continues um now as we move through the bible the entirety of scripture paints a picture of what i'm going to call a rescue vessel to save and redeem humanity and this is done through um what what well no, i'm not calling it but i've put it on the notes here the promised plan of god and uh just a book recommendation here that 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 term comes from a book by a guy called walter kaiser who wrote a book of the same name the promised plan of god and it's basically just a a structure through which a uh, walter kaiser views um views scripture of how to kind of understand it's just a biblical theology walter kaiser if you don't know me he was the head of the committee that, that translated the niv from gordon conwell a, an amazing kind of scholar and, and man of god but that promised plan of god is, is introduced very early i mean even as early as the immediately the fall happens genesis three fifteen. you know god promises the snake that the son of the woman would crush his head and so we find this pr promise that, that goes right throughout uh, the Old Testament and culminating 
in Jesus. But we see this promise uh, very soon in Genesis 12 in the choosing of a family, and that's Abraham's family. Before we get to the, the culmination in Jesus, I actually think it's important that we kind of ponder uh, this choosing of this family of faith is critical, uh, as a critical storyline in, in, in scriptures. Often we kind of breeze past it and get straight to Jesus because Jesus is the answer. But yet I think it's important for us to understand God's plan in choosing this family. This, uh, it, says, it says that identity in Exodus 19.6 as a, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, it says. Now, Amidst a godless world, uh, this community of, of, of Israel became a place of light, you know, a society planned to be a picture of God's redemption, um, a community that was entrusted with the very words of God. Uh, that's, you know, the, those are the words of Paul. It says, what, what benefit is there being a Jew? Well, they were entrusted with the very words of God, with the commands to love God and my neighbor right at the center. Uh, now, there's a lot that Israel got right in this, and, and some of the scriptures related to Israel are actually our clearest window into understanding what God's ultimate plan is for the age to come. If you, if you think about the kind of, I always think about a kind of a curve with kind of David and Solomon at the top, and then kind of sin enters in afterwards. But if you look at some of those chapters, um, as Solomon is reigning in the nation, it's almost like a picture of, of the age to come. Now, here's just a, a bunny trail here, because I've, I've got a friend who is uh, kind of fed up with America, and he kind of almost wants to go Amish and wants to build his own kind of Christian community. And it, and it got me thinking about all the ways that Christians have created their kind of communities in the past and then how they've engaged with culture. And there's lots of different ways that, that, that people have, have done this. Um, and nearly all of them have been really, really messy. <laughs> From Constantine, I think of like Calvin's Geneva. I think of, uh, you know, I think of the 70s. Uh, I don't know any of you, but we, we kind of, the charismatic renewal, lots of guys came together in kind of communities and joint families and lots of messy, messy things happened as a result. So it got me thinking about, okay, how, do we, how, how does a, a community of light live? And thinking actually back to Israel, of actually, although Israel was corrupted and, and needed Jesus to, to help them, there were actually a lot of good things that, that, can, that we can take from that picture of a society. Now, the overarching picture of Scripture you know, starts in the garden we've talked about and culminates in a city, a community of light with God, at the center, and it's interesting, as we read through Revelation, it restates this identity of the people of God as a kingdom of priests. So we, we see it, you know, in the garden, acting as priests, then choosing their identity in Exodus as priests, and then right at the end, uh, in Revelation 1-6, a kingdom of priests. Uh, the challenge for Israel was that they couldn't do it in their own strength, their, their, their sin made it impossible for them to fully enter into their destiny. And so, you know, they needed the Messiah to come. They needed the promised plan uh, to come to pass. And so we see Israel didn't uh, fulfill that destiny in the Old Testament. 
uh, in becoming priests of God to the whole world. It was, it was frustrated. But God did provide a way of ultimate salvation for both Jew and Gentile through the blood of Jesus. Uh, and then the whole body of his teaching of how the community of God should live. And then finally, a commission uh, you know, to go everywhere and invite everyone into this community. And so this great commission, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Acts 1, 8, uh, we find this commission to, to go out and take not only the message, but then the, the, the teaching of Jesus. And this is ultimately that, you know, Matthew 28 is probably the clearest kind of uh, summation of, of the Great Commission. And it's teaching the entirety of his, of his teaching. And some people go, well, you know, with Jesus' teaching, he kind of abrogates all of the Mosaic Covenant. And so there's, there's no commands to, to, to follow. Well, I don't know if you read through the whole teaching of Jesus, there's a whole lot more commands than actually even written down in the Old Testament. I think the, the, the Mosaic law had about 600 commands, but Jesus is teaching us about a thousand commands. I don't know if you, I don't know if you, if you knew that, but um, uh, as you read through the New Testament, you see the early church did follow that commission. And within a few centuries, we see the Roman world turned upside down, uh, you know, huge churches and, and a Christianized society. And, and, you know, I think this is largely why Constantine says, okay, well, I'm going to admit defeat. We need it. We need some kind of religion to, to hold this empire together. And it seems like the Christians have got it together, which I think, I think they did. Um, but I would suggest the way that the church has understood the commission, the great commission for the past century in the evangelical world has been a little more limited in, in scope. Now, um, I don't know how many uh, people are familiar with, with the student volunteer movement. Um, I'm British, I'm in America, so it very much affected um, Britain and America, but then went out into the world. But they, a group of, of, of students, you know, Moody was involved, John R. Mott, they came up with this slogan, the evangelization of the world in this generation. And uh, it became more than a slogan, world evangelization became kind of a cause and a methodology. And, uh, you know, one of my big heroes, Billy Graham, the statesman of the evangelical world, probably in the 20th century, had this big aim, decisions for Christ. I don't, I don't know about you. I remember seeing that uh, my dad was a Youth for Christ evangelist, and we used to have the decision magazine not there on the coffee table. Um, but literally, like, it, preaching for a decision and on an industrial scale. So we see these mass crusades, we see television broadcasts. And um, I don't want to be, uh, you know, crass or oversimplistic. Um, but I think in, in that, our understanding of the Great Commission became a little more narrower. It was more focused on an individual. It was more focused on a proclamation of a message of justification before God and a, a focus really on, on new birth. Now, a little, just a little aside here, because this is one of my little hobby horses. Um, in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, um, they really show us four normative components of a, of a new birth experience. Uh, and you can go through the, all, the whole book of Acts, 
I encourage you to do the study if you disagree with me, but it's basically four things. One is repentance, repent. Two, belief, repent and believe. Three, get baptized with water. And then four, get baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the four things that, that the book of Acts shows us are the four normative experiences of new birth. And uh, lots of times we don't have that, that, that fullness of experience of new birth. Because um, I would suggest in the 20th century, because of maybe that narrowing view of the, the Great Commission, uh, the evangelism movement focused on probably the first two components um, at the expense of the later two. So repentance and belief um, become the kind of the two things that people have to do. And there's an, an assumption almost, and there's a verse, there's a few verses which, which may indicate that that you get filled with the spirit at the moment of repentance and belief. But um, I think that the, the overarching span of the New Testament shows that actually the, the baptism of the spirit is actually a separate experience. You know, they go to the, the disciples there in, uh, in Ephesus and they're like, did you receive the baptism of the spirit? And they're like, what are you talking about? We received John's baptism. And so then they, they get the baptism in the spirit as a separate experience. Clearly, uh, clearly believers. Um, you know, thankfully, Pentecostal charismatic movement in the 20th century saw a restoration of the of the spirit, so it's, uh, the baptism of the spirit. So that's a good thing. But anyway, that's just a little a little bunny trail there. Now, I don't want to downplay the importance of of new birth and the message of justification. It's like it's so so important for individuals who are far away from Jesus to find new life in Him. Um, but I will say that that message of justification isn't necessarily the gospel of Jesus. Um, what, what do I mean? Well, we find very early on in Jesus's ministry that he's going out, you know, into the into the Galilee and he's preaching what he's preaching the gospel, the good news. Well, in that he wasn't preaching Jesus has died for your sin, repent, believe, and you'll find new life. What was he preaching? He was preaching the kingdom of God is near. He was preaching the whole, the whole council of God <laughs> and saying the Messiah has now come. The, the, the story has been redeemed. Uh, I'm here. And so, um, and so I, I think as we think about the gospel, as we think about the, even the Great Commission, that it's so, so much more uh, than new birth. Uh, and not only that, often often when we think of, of that message of justification, we think of almost like a finish line, uh, almost like a horizontal kind of person's outside of the kingdom and they, we need to bring them and bring them over that finish line into the kingdom. They've said the sinner's prayer, so now they're in the kingdom. Um, but the, the way that the, the Bible describes salvation is not in that hor horizontal, in that kind of vertical way. It's called a way of salvation. Uh, we, we enter into that way of salvation and we're, we're being saved until, you know, the day of glorification when we'll be saved uh, fully. And it, I think it's important that we, that we get on that way of salvation, but it's not just about getting people over that line to say that the sinner's prayer. I'm sure, I'm sure you all agree with that point. Now, the big point of the way of salvation is, that at, when we're born, we're born into a community. We're born into the, the community of believers. 
And so even as we read in the beginning of Acts, 3,000 were added to their number on that day. And so, it, you know, here's a question. It's like, how do, you, how do you count new believers? Like, you know, I'm working with Rick Warren and finishing the task and getting new believers. Well, how do you count a new believer? Is it somebody that said the sinner's prayer? Well, actually, the way that the New Testament does it is it basically doesn't care so much about the sinner's prayer. It cares about actually how many were added to the number of believers. And this community of believers is the vehicle uh, through which God's purposes come to pass. Now, here's a, here's a verse in Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now through the, through the church, the, the fellowship of called out ones, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, um, new birth without community is sadly almost without exception stillbirth. Um, you know, my dad, Youth for Christ evangelist, doing the Billy Graham thing, going to a place, 200 people come forward, say the sinner's prayer, comes back a few months later. Where are those new believers? Nowhere to be seen. Why? Well, they sat on the back row and we, they didn't do, bring much. So, in the end, they just kind of wandered away. And uh, I think I think without that intentional discipleship bringing into the community, then uh, conversion is actually not, not true conversion. It's, it's stillbirth. And so the ecclesia, you know, which is the word that which we translate in English as church, maybe better translated as mob or gathering or called out ones, um, is unfortunately now for many the church is the thing which turns people away from Christ. You know, I mentioned at the beginning there are three ministries that I serve. Well, those ministries are often the ones that people like just turn their nose up. Well, if that's what church is, I want nothing to do with it. You know, there's a documentary recently, Lord Save Us From Your Followers. Uh, you know, so many scandals have rocked the church in recent times, you know, child abuse, all, all manner of, of bad things, because people, people have, people have, have, have just been, you know, there's abuse power, abuse sex, you know, the girls, the golden, the glory, whatever you name it, but the church suddenly has a name of notoriety, it isn't the ultimate environment for making disciples. But I want to say that isn't what the New Testament says. And that actually isn't what history says. The church is the only place where we're called to, to ultimately make disciples. It should be a community that follows the commands of Jesus. And if it does, and the sad fact is many, many churches don't follow the commands of Jesus, I would say, I believe the church will be turned and the world will be turned turned upside down like it or not for most of us especially in the west the church looks more like a place we attend to worship maybe on a sunday versus a community in which we live and then launch into the world but um let's put a discussion about how can we restore the church and assume for a second that it's healthy and functioning 
what does the restoration of the original commission look like in our everyday life? I want to suggest it involves work and the transformation of various spheres of society in which we find ourselves. And so I want to suggest that when we think about the Great Commission, I want, uh, thinking about the original commission and bringing the two together, if we are to make disciples of all nations, the kingdom of God has to affect every area of our life from the place of a community uh, of, of believers. Now, I want to suggest God came as a worker. God came as a worker in Genesis. And then in the incarnation, when Jesus came as an adult, he spent, he spent 21 years as an adult. Has anybody thought of this? After his bar mitzvah, uh, now contrary to certain Gnostic gospels and recent movies you may have watched, he was only a wonder-working rabbi for three years of that time. And when I say wonder-working, it says explicitly in the New Testament that the miracle at Cana was his first miracle. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if you've read any of the Gnostic Gospels or any of these movies, but you see Jesus as a kid. It's kind of like, uh, what's that, what's that um, Superman show? Uh, but it shows Superman as a kid, you know, being a secret Superman when he was a kid growing up. People think the same about Jesus. What, what was Jesus's childhood like? Was he, was he doing a bunch of miracles? And I think the Bible tells us, no, he wasn't doing a bunch of miracles. The wedding at Canaan was his first miracle. So what was he doing for that time? The other six sevenths of his adult life, we have very little information, but it seems likely that he would follow in Joseph's trade of woodworking or, or, or tradesmanship. Uh, you know, this was a manual trade that the prevailing Greek culture of the Romans would have looked down upon. Clearly, Jesus didn't. Jesus chose the manner of his birth, the place where we, he was born, the people who would become his parents. And therefore, I think there was intentionality in choosing the trade that he chose. You know, he didn't come doing the job of a king, a senator or a centurion. He wasn't even born into the family of a Pharisee or a priest. Jesus chose to be a craftsman. Now, the Greek word for that is kind of a little funny aside. The Greek word for that craftsman is tekton, of which we get our English word techie. Um, and uh, I, so I often say Jesus chose to be a techie because that was, uh, that was, he chose that manual labor. And I think that's instructive for all of us who are called to be disciples of Jesus. God doesn't think any kind of work is below him. It's not part of the curse. It's something we can actually imitate Jesus in. So God came as a, as a worker in, the, in Genesis, and then when Jesus came, he also came as a worker. He created culture. He didn't condemn it. He didn't critique it. He didn't copy it, but he, he created new culture. Now, the original Genesis mandate was that we would have rule, dominion, subdue, Humanity is called to this leadership role on earth. We're told in the New Testament that it's a noble desire to be an overseer. The question is, how do we lead in these areas beyond just, you know, becoming a Christian and being in the church? How does that affect all of life? Because I believe if we're to, called to be disciples of all nations, it should affect all of life. People know the, the name Abraham Kuyper. 
he had a very famous quote, which I was I'm just going to remind people of. If people haven't heard this quote before, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of man's existence over which Christ, who is sovereign overall, does not cry mine. There is a specific view of cultural leadership that was proposed in the 60s and 70s by a guy called R.J. Rushduni, which was called Christian Reconstructionism. Taken to its extreme, this view led to theocracy. Rush Dooney talk of, talked of theonomy. Now, this view was critiqued, and I, I would critique it and, and found wanting. And, and you know, I, I just mentioned it before. Everyone from Constantine through to Calvin's Geneva, all the way through church history, nearly every time Christians have tried to take over uh, society, it's gone wrong. And lots of people, people outside of the church have criticized this. They've called it a dominionist agenda. Um, but I want to suggest that rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we should ponder here for a moment about s- some of these things, because I believe that if we are to make disciples of all nations, we're called to create a transformation in all of society, in all areas of society. But w- w- what exactly does that look like? Because I believe that transformation in all areas of society is the fullness of the Great Commission. Seeing Jesus's uh, commands and teachings worked out in every area of our life is the fullness of the Great Commission. So one view that people here or probably on this call have heard of is, is is the area of the seven spheres or seven mountains. Uh, what am I talking about? If you haven't heard about it, well, there's a story connected to it. And uh, the story is this, in 1975, Bill Bright, who's the founder of Campus Crusade, and Lauren Cunningham, founder of YWAM, were meeting together in Colorado. I've talked to Lauren about this. I interviewed him for a TV, I made a whole TV show actually about, about this. So I interviewed a bunch of the crew guys, a bunch of the YWAM guys, and heard the whole story. They were on two sides of a mountain. I'm not, I'm not actually sure which mountain, but they came and they had they had dinner together. Unbeknownst to each of them, God was giving them a similar message. And, you know, Lauren said he was spending time in prayer. And, and basically, as he was praying about the Great Commission, the Lord showed him these spheres of society that mold and shape the way a society thinks and approaches life from the simplest of societies all the way up to the most complex of societies, it it doesn't matter. There's these basic building blocks um, that need to to have, you know, the life and the approach of Jesus injected into them if if we're going to see transformation in the society. Now, during the same time, Francis Schaeffer was also kind of giving a similar message. You know, I remember... um, Lauren said, you know, I, I went to see Bill. And I was like, the Lord's just been impressing something on me. And Bill stopped him and pulled a piece of paper. It's like, yeah, me too. And pulled it out and basically had the same message that if we're to fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples of any nation, we have to affect these spheres of society. And these spheres are in what they determined were arts and entertainment, number one, business, education, family, government, media, and religion. And, uh, you know, like it or not, these, these are the things which, which consume our days. Um, and sometimes if, if all we're focused on is how we just kind of focus as a, as a, as a kind of closed away 
community and that doesn't affect the rest of our life, then it's it's not important. We need to know what it what how as Christians we we deal with money, how we deal with power, how we deal with family. You know, what does it look like for for you know godly godly decisions to be made in government? Um, all of these things actually actually matter, but how we approach it is is also vitally vitally important i think i think we can probably all agree that all of these spheres affect society in profound ways but i think there's right and there's wrong ways to actually apply what does it therefore mean to disciple in these areas now what i mean by right or wrong ways is there is a challenge, a problem that has affected the church from the very, very earliest days of, of Jesus' disciples. And it's this, you know, Jesus is walking along a road. He suddenly hears his disciples whispering further back. He's like, what are, you, what are you guys talking about? And what they were talking about is they were discussing, probably not whispering, who amongst them was the greatest. And within us all is this kind of innate desire for greatness and yet Jesus showed them that the roads to greatness didn't lie in the typical tools that we that we think of it didn't lie in political networking debate climbing the greasy pole of ambition rather becoming great was about pursuing the risky road of sacrifice humble serving radical love Jesus's original disciples had challenges with wrongly applying their desire for greatness and the disciples of Jesus, or some people might not even say the disciples of Jesus, have had the same challenges ever since. Now, Jesus is king. He's the ultimate leader. But his approach to leadership is the approach that we should follow. Jesus called them and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. It shall not be so amongst you. Whoever would be great amongst you, let him serve you. Whoever would be first among you, let him be your slave. Even as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The unfortunate truth is today, and as I look back throughout history, the church continues to be conformed to the pattern of the world in the area of leadership. We continue to strive and, and strive for leadership positions. Uh, you know, often I think of um, egalitarian, complementarian debate. You know what I'm talking about? Women in leadership, don't really care which side you fall on in terms of that debate, but often the very way that that debate is framed is wrong because the way that the debate is framed is like, who should be on top? Who should get to give the dictates? And it's like, ah, oh, that is... <laughs> That is the wrong way of leadership. That is, that is not what Jesus talked about when he talked about leadership. Now, leaders shouldn't shirk responsibility in making decisions. But the main purpose of leadership is to serve and release those who are following. And this isn't an approach that is congruent with the typical assumptions regarding leadership. And yet, it should be. And so I just want to... Think about often when, when people talk about those seven spheres, what the application often is, is 
that we need people in all the different areas. So you need to be at the top of that particular mountain. So I think of like arts and entertainment. People often like, okay, yeah, we need people who are Christians who are famous for Jesus. And it's like, really? And so people do all that they can and they make so many compromises. You know, we're a crossover band. We were a Christian band and now we want to be a crossover band to make to have bigger influence. And by the time they climb that greasy pole to the top, they've made so many compromises that they're not, they're not a testimony at all. You know, I think we just talked about government here this morning about often it's an ugly word in dominion, dominionism, you know, the, the, the secular press, you know, all these crazy evangelicals coming in, they, they want to take over. They want to, they want theocracy. And, and people think about it, they, we need to take our, our country for Jesus. And, you know, I, I taught a, a, a church history class for about 15 years. And when I come to the place of uh, Constantine, I would actually often have a church debate, a, a debate, I'd split the class into two. And I was like, is it a good thing that Christian Christianity is legalized and becomes the state religion? And it was a really helpful debate in terms of America and, and any other nation about how Christians approach to power. And, um, and often when Christians have come to power, they've, they've taken the same approach as the world. They've, they've fought for their own rights. And, and often it's, it's, it's been ugly. Now, I just want to say my, my biggest hero is, not my biggest, but one of my heroes is William Wilberforce. And when he became a believer, he was basically going to throw it all away. And, uh, but, but for such a time as this, he was chosen and he, and he actually brought about righteous legislation, you know, in terms of slavery and in terms of lots of other social changes, which brought massive, massive change uh, to not only England, but the whole of the, uh, of the empire at that time, which I think was, was helpful for the whole world. Here's another question, which a lot of people get caught up in. I would often ask que question, and I'm sure lots of people have got opin opinions about this. But can I be rich and be a Christian? And the answer is yes. Here's a, here's a, but here's another question. Can I desire to be rich and be a Christian? And when I'd ask many of my classes this, I don't know what people think about here. Many, Yes, you can be rich and be a Christian. Yes. How many people think you can desire to be rich and be a Christian? Everyone, again, puts their hands up and say, I think I, think I disagree with you. Um, Paul has a pretty unequivocal statement to Timothy, and he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, I'm not going to get, this is a huge, all of these little areas, I'm kind of just peeking into a little bit, huge areas. But I think that the Bible has a lot to say about money. Um, and I think it's, I think if we're going to disciple nations and disciple communities, we need to have that, that understanding of money more than simply just giving. Because often when we think about money, the pastor preaches about money and it's the, it's the Sunday to talk about tithes and giving. And that's pretty much the, the, the limit that we talk about money in the church. But there's so much about money that, that needs to be talked about that, that is helpful because money makes the world go around. And it certainly does. We can see it today with all the, 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 the sanctions on Russia, 
the West has had a massive <laughs> impact on Russia because of the, the sanctions, because money does make the world go around. But what is the kingdom approach to money? And I think there's a whole lot of area there that, that we need to, to understand if we're going to be able to, to disciple a nation. So what's the right approach? Am I against Christians being famous? No. We need Christian artists, actors, producers to be salt and light. Am I against Christian politicians? Absolutely not. I think we need righteous men and women to serve in our governments. Am I against Christians being wealthy? No, I've got lots of friends who are actually billionaires and lots of friends who have nothing. It's not about that. You know, I'm not a big proponent of the health and wealth, wealth gospel. Um, wealth has always been used to, to further the, the aims of the kingdom of God from the earliest days until now. It's the desire for riches that is actually harmful. So, so just bringing this to a close, this is what I've been thinking about this. Often, um, at least in the churches I've gone to, there's been things called workplace ministry or marketplace ministry, and it's become more popular in recent times. Often in the missions world, it would be business for missions or business as missions, business as ministry. And I've often thought of it because it's often been presented in organizations and the churches that I've been part of as ancillary, secondary to the main work of a Christian. Yet I want to leave you with a challenge that we're called to make disciples of all nation, and that includes seeing the rule and reign of Christ extend over all areas of our life. Ministry is more than what takes place in a church or evangelistic meeting. Ministry, when the first commission was given, was ministering to the Lord in the midst of work and the creation of culture. My prayer is that as, as more and more around the world embrace the sacrifice of the Lamb and are ushered into the kingdom, that this vital ministry of the Lord continues to grow and thrive as a key component of our discipleship to the nations. Because for everybody, most people spend nine to five or more in the place of work. And what does it look like for Jesus to take over? Thank you for listening to the Joshua Nation's Inheritance Podcast. We hope you were encouraged and challenged with today's message. For more from Joshua Nations, visit our website at joshuanations.org. Thank you.